Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well. I'm stellar. Thanks. How are, how are you, Darren? I'm very interested in what we're going to be talking about this week to complete the title for those playing at home. Yes! <laughs> um, where games are fun for everybody. Yes. Dorks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, given the movie that we're going to be talking about today. But yes! So- <laughs> So um, one of the one of the, the basically over the past year or so we've been in a pandemic and what we've been doing is we're reaching out to guests that we've had on the podcast uh, in you know in the recent or not so recent history who maybe we wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to have on because obviously you know geographic distances and and that sort of thing as well. So well, we- time and space may <laughs> may separate ourselves and our guests, but. Um... Uh, what has brought us together? Technology? Is it love? <laughs> it's a force that holds the universe together, Andrew. It is like gravity. Um, but no, so joining us for this discussion, the wonderful Andy Hazel, who joined us, uh, I think, three years ago now to make us all feel very old for our Twin Peaks discussion. And also joined us to talk about Mary and Max as well, I think, about two, two and a half years ago. So how are you, Andy? Doing great, actually, all the way down here in Melbourne. It's um, is it, There's worse places to be, yeah. Ah, good, good. Um, and when we reached out to you, we kind of we asked what you want to talk about. So if you want to pick a movie on the list that you want to talk to uh, talk about, and we came up with kind of a number of options, but I think we settled on the one that we're talking about today, which is Christopher Nolan's 2014 Interstellar. What was it about Interstellar that kind of well, clicked with you? I guess it, I've just been really curious about how the discussion about this film has changed a lot because when it came out, I remember quite specifically, and I'm sure we'll get into it with more detail, that people were like, "Oh yeah." You know, it's okay. And then gradually it's become like the best Nolan, you know, by, I don't know, I've just been very curious about why it's all shifted. And then other movies came out like Ad Astra and First Man and people were like, yeah, really, really good. Not as good as Interstellar. And, you know, and then it suddenly became this high watermark. And I was like, when did that happen? You know, and then of course I turned to you guys. Uh, <laughs> answer this bizarre question. Hope. Hoping for insight that I'm afraid we may not be able to offer, but I I have a big piece later on stats. Great, I'm oh, looking forward to hearing that. Maybe in, that, in, that's where the truth really? is. Really, IMDb? No, no, not really, Darren. <laughs> you get you get my hopes up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like really Darren, and, and you did research. <laughs> what sort of bizarro world are we living in? Um, um, up is down. Yeah. Uh, we're approaching no. the event horizon. We're stuck inside the tesseract. Um, yeah. Because I do remember, actually, because when we were talking about, like, films that we covered, you had a number of ideas, Andy, and kind of, like, it was Interstellar that you really kind of fixated on, that you were like, yeah, because I think you suggested a couple, then you're like, have, have you talked about Interstellar? And I said, no, and you're like, that's it, we're doing Interstellar. Do you remember the first time that you saw it? Yeah, very clearly. I um, I was bought a ticket the day they went on sale, went to see it in IMAX. Um, I think we've got, like, the fourth biggest screen in the world here in Melbourne or something, and I was like, this seems like the sort of thing that Nolan would like me to do. So, um. I went along to that and it was a, yeah, oh, wow. an extremely impressive experience. <laughs> One that I replicated last year with Tenet, which was like, go had an IMAX screening here with the first week out of our eight-month lockdown that we had last year. And I was like, I feel like going to the movies and why not have to go to the biggest thing possible or greatest Christopher Nolan movie. And I feel like you give the film an extra star if you see it in those sort of situ- situations because um, it really is kind of overwhelming and impressive. I think... Isn't the sound even better on IMAX? Yeah. Um, so unlike a lot of people, I could make out most of what was being said in Tenet, which I hear people have struggled <laughs> with in other parts of the world. Well, well that, that, that's a – I feel like it's a Christopher Nolan kind of um, auteur um, uh, 
<laughs> signature. Of, uh, signature. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he does not do ADR. He did ADR once. He did it on The Dark Knight Rises and he apparently did not care for it. Um, the, the rumor goes that the first teaser trailer for The Dark Knight Rises was Bane was indecipherable so he apparently had to go back and redub it for the movie and there's some suggestion that he did not care for that at all and um i don't to be fair i don't think that like interstellar dunkirk and tenet have been nolan's revenge for having to dub bane over in the uh, dark knight rises but I, like i i do actually i could see where the argument comes from though <laughs> there, there was a lot of like dunkirk that i could not hear <laughs> yeah. um and there was even bits of this that 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 like it was fine I was just like, I'm, sh- I'm sure M- Matthew McConaughey said something. <laughs> actually, actually, I, I, I played it with, with subtitles this time, so it wasn't so oh, much. That's a initiative. great idea, and I don't yeah. mind it at all. Yeah. Um. Well, this is the thing. I mean, again, not, not to jump too far ahead or into, into conversations about this, but like again, it was very much designed for the IMAX experience. I think Andy mentioned there seeing it in IMAX as Nolan intended. He jokes it was the longest movie that had ever been made for IMAX to deliver a reel of footage for an IMAX projector projector for this took a forklift. It was (laughs) an astonishing accomplishment. And again, not to talk too much about the sound, because there was a minor controversy over the sound when this was released. And this was the, this is the point at which you really started seeing people critiquing Nolan's use of sound. And I mean, we'll maybe talk about it in the spoiler zone. I, again, I agree with Andrew. I think it's an aesthetic choice. And I think it's a very conscious aesthetic choice that is Nolan pushing against his reputation as the dialogue guy or the exposition guy or the guy who over-explains everything. Like, I think there are points in Tenet, not to get too spoilery, where he'll actually have characters sit down and say, now I'm going to explain the plot to you and then cut away um, as if to frustrate the audience, which I kind of take Nolan to be trolling. Or uh, like Dunkirk, which is structured so that it doesn't have... He he very he was very proud of the fact in uh, interviews around it that it didn't have any of what he called map scenes scenes where characters pointed at a map and explained the plot uh, in very clear terms to the audience. He's just like no no no, don't try to understand it, feel it. To quote from Tenet, and mm. famously, I think Interstellar, when it screened, a a number of IMAX cinemas actually had to put up signs basically saying it's not our fault if you can't understand what's going on here it's being screened the way that nolan intends it and second of all and this is this is kind of amazes me apparently it blew out a number of imax um sound systems in theaters in the u.s like apparently they literally exploded uh trying to play the soundtrack for this movie which is kind of amazing um but yeah no it's kind of dazzling so you saw it and was it kind of love at first sight was it like immediately this is a great film or did it grow on you in the way that you kind of talked well that was what i was really keen to revisit it to see if it had because i remember being really impressed um as particularly certain things uh, you know we'll get into when we talk about the film that were just absolutely jaw-dropping i was like this is where wonder collides with science in the most maximalist way possible and it was astonishing i mean <laughs> yeah there was yeah some scenes where i was like this is yeah it's gonna stay with me forever and then other parts i was like well this is dragging a bit and oh this is a bit far-fetched how's he gonna justify this you know and then when i came out i was really surprised to see that reviews were mixed i really thought that people were just going to be like overwhelmed but then i'm thinking like 90 something percent of people wouldn't have seen it in 4k imax you know or the best you know, possible standard that you could see it at the time. Because when I went to see Tenet, there was a there was a, like a video introduction from Nolan saying, "Thank you so much for coming to see my film in IMAX. It's so important to me that people are seeing it the way that I intended." And you know, in this time, it's really dangerous. You know, because there's all been all that bad press all through 2020 that I'm sure you were across where like you know yeah. Nolan is asking people to risk their lives to go and see his film rather than just waiting like oh. everybody else. Um, I got and- accused of trying to murder people by <laughs> giving Tenet a review. Yes, um, right. You know, yeah, this yeah. is the yeah crazy. Uh, yeah, but you. 
And like you, you murdering a person had nothing to do with that review. That was a separate. That was completely separate uh, occasion. Yeah, that was like, yeah. Pe- like, like it seems to me that that one murder will follow you around pe- for like the rest of your life. People cannot You're- separate a private and public persona, Andrew. I've been saying this for no, years. No, it's cancel culture. <laughs> okay. Speaking of which, this is Matthew McConaughey. But <laughs> um, Andrew, uh, what about yourself? Ma- Do you remember the first time you saw Interstellar? I think I, I I I might have seen it in the um, I might have seen it in the cinema. I think I did. I feel like I was um, maybe one of those people who was um, initially underwhelmed. I remember. I I think I went away from it thinking that was really really good, but I don't know if it was as good as Inception. Yes, 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 yes. I think I think ever since. Um, the the last few times I've seen it, it's really um, take it just gets bigger and bigger in my in in my mind to the point that it might be one of my <laughs> uh, favorite movies. Um, yeah, this um, I I mean, I feel exhausted just having watched it because it <laughs> it, it really it really gets me emotionally. I mean, the, 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 yeah, the, 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 the thing, the thing that I'll think about isn't like the first time I saw the movie. It'll be like, um, each time since, um, that kind of sticks in my mind more. Um, and it's a movie that rewards rewatching, I think, yeah. as well. Um, but no, I, I was positive when I, when I saw it first. And I remember when Arrival came out, not liking Arrival and people saying, Oh, Arrival is great, and it's so much better than Interstellar. It's like Interstellar if Interstellar were good. And I was like, <laughs> I think Interstellar was good, <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, the, the, the um, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe I should mix in those circles. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, um, how about yourself, Darren? Yeah, I I, um, I again like every Nolan movie since The Dark Knight Rises it was one that I took the day off work to go and see the press screening because I'm a real life journalist um, as opposed to waiting in the evening to go and see it like at the kind of evening screening it was like I want to see this you know as early as possible in you know as perfect a space as imaginable with a bunch of people who are going to sit there silently and not be on their phone or not talk about Um, Christopher Nolan did that thing where he's like Hello, Darren, and thank you for watching my movie. <laughs> thank you for taking the day off work. To thank come. you for taking the day off work. <laughs> to come to this the is the way. Um, no, I do. I remember seeing it and I remember really liking it, which is, again, not surprising given I literally wrote a book on Christopher Nolan. It's like, yeah, this turns out to be exactly my jam. And it's really weird because like, it's pretty much the exact same. And it's odd that like, all three of us seem to have had the same response to it, or at least myself and Andrew did. I don't want to presume for for Andy kind of coming back to it. But it was like sitting down, watching it, really liking it, really loving it. And then every time since it kind of growing in my estimation, because I think a lot of Nolan films I kind of fell in love with at first sight, and I've, I've loved them pretty much the same amount ever since. And that like, you know, I've always never been as hot on Inception as everybody else is. I've always loved the prestige as I think Nolan's kind of high watermark creatively. The Dark Knight is is to me still, is and always, probably always will be the best comic book movie. And Interstellar's a very strange one because I saw it and I was like, 
this is great. This is clever. This is Nolan pushing outside his comfort zone. This is him doing something new and very much playing with how people see him as a director and doing something that is strangely personal on an <laughs> while also being, I think Andy used the adjective maximalist, and that is very much what Interstellar is, down to its two hour and 49 minute runtime. Uh, but emotionally, uh, in terms of scale and spectacle, it absolutely is. And like appreciating it as a piece of technique and craft and then coming back to it every time since and again maybe it's one of those things where as you get older maybe maybe the film doesn't change what you do finding myself connecting with it emotionally more and more each time and kind of its themes and the ideas that it approaches but i think actually what andy mentioned there at the start about why he wanted to talk about it is worth very quickly unpacking this because Interstellar arrived at the time, and again, I don't know if it's appropriate to use the term backlash to describe the kind of shifting public persona or public opinion of Nolan, where like Nolan had emerged as an indie star coming out of, you know, with Memento, uh, Batman Begins very well received, The Prestige very well received, The Dark Knight was basically the second coming when it arrived, uh, one of the few movies to have been number one on the IMVs 250 and regarded as one of the greatest movies ever, Inception when it came out also immediately hailed as a classic, and then obviously The Dark Knight Rises arrived and it was initially received well and the reputation seems to have soured it seems to have almost had the opposite uh relationship with audiences that interstellar did where it was received with this warm incredible enthusiasm crossing the billion mark garnering rave reviews and kind of very enthusiastic fan following and then in the years that followed its kind of reputation diminished or fell and then Interstellar arrived. Interstellar arrived at a time where I think people were perhaps a bit more skeptical of Nolan, whether, you know, perhaps because his tropes had become a bit more worn, perhaps because criticism of certain tropes that he employed, particularly, say, his, his use of women or kind of the dead wife uh, kind of cliche that he came back to. And I think he deconstructs and explores. But the idea that, you know, this is what Nolan does and he just does it continuously, his fixation on time, there was a real sense, I think, in critical circles at least, that Nolan had kind of reached the limit of his abilities. And you can see that looking at, say, the Rotten Tomatoes score, where Interstellar, as Andy pointed out, had a relatively low, I think it's somewhere in the 70s, uh, which is still positive. 72. 72, which is still positive, uh, but is not as high as, obviously, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Inception, Dunkirk, that sort of thing. And the interesting thing about that is that despite that reaction, that immediate reaction to it, it seems to have a very enthusiastic audience following. Um, it is Nolan's third highest ranked movie on the IMDb behind The Dark Knight and Inception. Uh, it's currently ranked at number 29, placing it in the top 30 movies ever made. It's not only held steady since it kind of stabilized back in 2016, it's actually managed to climb, which is a very rare thing on the list. Normally movies trend sharply downwards. Um, and obviously, even if you look at things like, say, the Rotten Tomatoes user score is much more positive than the critic score. So it really does seem like even if, you know, it hasn't had a reappraisal, it's been more enthusiastically embraced by audiences than, you know, than it was by critics on release. And I've noticed actually as somebody who like writes about Nolan and who tweets occasionally when he's watching Nolan movies, it's interesting to watch the response that I get. Cause when I tweet about the, do you, do you just say you tweet occasionally um, about <laughs> Nolan? I tweet, I tweet constantly, but I tweet occasionally about <laughs> Nolan. Um, That's why I left Twitter. It was like, I can't keep up with Darren, <laughs> let alone like everybody else. <laughs> um, but like, but like I like I'll, I'll watch I'll watch a Nolan movie and it's interesting it's like the response I get well like when I say something nice about the Dark Knight Rises it's like I reversed a pickup truck over Twitter's children 
Like the response is yeah. incredibly visceral and angry. And like not on, like that thing on Twitter where it's like, this guy has a different opinion, get him. And in contrast, when I tweet nice things about Interstellar, everyone's like, yeah, this is amazing and this is great, which is not what I would have expected given the reaction when it came out. So Andy, actually, do you want to talk about it now or do you want to wait until we get a bit more further into the discussion? But how has it changed for you over time? Well, this is one thing that I was kind of looking at was partly those stats you were just talking about, thinking, is it because, you know, IMDb voters are becoming more global and it's less about American guys who are watching movies and it's actually finding a new audience in different parts of the world. Is this why it's moving up the charts? Because I was really interested in that as well. Like, um, like we're saying, it's very unusual for it to climb. Um, and I think maybe it is because when people, if people are revisiting it, I mean, it's very easy to be overawed by it and think this is a great film. This is, you know, even on a smaller screen, it's just so, there's so much um, tactility to it that it's it really kind of cuts through a lot of the CGI-heavy films that have maybe sprung up in the wake of, of Dark Knight. Um, that, um, at least for me, like you both have already said, it's like when you revisit it, it's just really interesting to see how much more powerfully the emotional side plays, which is usually, you know, which is I think is kind of unusual, particularly for a big-budget film like this where you're expecting to go back and be awed again by a giant wave or by a rocket taking off or something like that. Like these are the things that stuck with me when I was before I rewatched it um, a few days ago. I was like, "Well, this is the main thing I remember: is the water planet, is the is the countdown, and him driving away from the house." There's a few other key scenes that really stuck with me. But then what I completely forgotten was this emotional arc that cuts through, and it's very easily to ridicule it by you know t- pulling a line out of context, like you can do with Tenet, you know, which um, well, you know we'll get into, I suppose. But um, but yeah, I was really, really surprised, like both of you, I think, just how well it played, you know, and will probably play better the next time I watch it. Yeah. And I mean, again, you mentioned the international success, like on Doban, which is the Chinese equivalent to IMDb, it is at number 11. Right. It's, I think, Nolan's best performing film in China. In fact, actually, it got re-released in China during the pandemic, which is what pushed it to $700 million. And like, it's worth pausing just now to acknowledge this. Nolan made a non-IP-related science fiction live-action blockbuster that made $700 million at the global box office while also exploring the theory of relativity. That is staggering to me. Um, if you want to go and compare uh, like similar sort of success stories, you have to go back to Gravity the year before, which I think hit $800 million worldwide. And then before that, it's uh, Inception for, eight, you know, for, again, for $800 million worldwide as well. Like, that's... That's the level at which Interstellar performed. It is a live-action original blockbuster that performed, I think, better than, say, Ant-Man. You know, better than some of the early Marvel Studios films. It's it's a unicorn, uh, which is which is remarkable to me. It's dazzling. yeah, that is that's that's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, all right, then. Before we jump into the kind of the spoiler zone, we're going to do three questions to kick us off. So, Andy, to, to start us off here. Do you think Interstellar belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Uh, yep, I do. Cool. And, and Maybe, Andrew, uh, 20, sorry, oh, just sorry. to go back, 29 seems really high to me, but I, I think it does belong <laughs> in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how would you rank it in Nolan's filmography, actually? Well, I th- it's weird because I was actually looking at that because I, like, you know, like you guys, am quite keen on lists. And I, I, <laughs> I, just after I rewatched it, I revisited my um, 100 best movies of the 2010s list where it was like at 86. Um, and I, after that, you know, I got bumped right up to, into the top 20. Because, but it's still behind. I mean, it's still behind Inception. But now I've no real inclination to revisit Inception because it's just been ridiculed so many times and by, by people with the blah and you know various other <laughs> lines taken out of context, dead wife, all that sort of stuff. 
that yeah. yeah now this is the one that is like really inspiring wonder and, and making me want to revisit it and write about it and seek out where people have written about it so yeah i think it's probably it probably be equal with dark knight i suppose but i'm really keen to revisit insomnia i haven't seen that for ages too so that could all the prestige even yeah so at the moment i think it's probably my favorite Night of Nolan's filmography. That's nice. Yeah. That's that's pretty impressive. Fantastic. And and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think it belongs on the list of the two hundred and fifty greatest movies ever made? I do, and I I I I think I agree with Andy. Um, this is your I favorite think, Nolan film. This is the yeah, best yeah, I think it is. Um, I mean, I I quite like. Um, <laughs> I do, I do, I do quite like Inception. Um, I do quite like The Dark Knight. I think. I think this wins, though, for me. I mean, um, yeah, it 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 sounds great. I I love the score. Yes, um, and it it really gets me emotionally. Like I I think I, I actually I think I wrote it down. I think I cried five times. Watching the movie, and it, it was it was just like I I I I I think this even gets you down. It does, it does. It's it's incredible. Um, it kind of hits the like the Darren robot. I think was it the robot who generates movie opinions is how Andrew describes it. And yes, this. this Have I ever said? That? <laughs> I, thought, I thought that I thought that was you. I thought I, I don't know who else is witty enough to say that. Like it's a it's a very good bon mot. It's like when it's like you're uh, this is the snake sucking its own dick. It's like. Darren's going to steal that and work that into conversation because it's such a great line. It is a really great line, Andrew. Own it. Um, <laughs> but no, I I would. Um, yeah, that that yeah. So it, it does get me. I do I do miss die up at this. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause, I mean, what I'm curious about is like when I think about wanting to rewatch something like Inception, I go, well, or do I really want to watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service, or do I want to watch one of these other <laughs> movies? And the answer is usually, yeah, I'd probably rather watch Casino Royale or something like that. But with with Interstellar, I don't feel like, oh, I want to go back and watch 2001. I want to watch Interstellar. Yeah, that's a very good point as well, because it is very... And it's... We'll probably talk about it in the spoiler zone, because it is very much Nolan engaging. I kind of mentioned, alluded to it earlier. It's Nolan engaging with his public persona. And it's notable... I don't know if you've read the, the Nolan Variations, the new book from Tom Sean, which is probably the second best book on Nolan ever written. Um, but it's basically... <laughs> um, in, I know. I'm, I'm being just, the other one is uh, is obviously the Nolan variation. Sorry, it's obviously uh, yeah. But anyway, but the the Nolan variations is basically in it. There's a really fascinating discussion between Nolan and Sean where they're talking about Interstellar, and Nolan is is typically very aloof and very uh, wry and very you know kind of that that stereotypical depiction of him as kind of cold, clinical, and detached. But what's interesting is there comes a point where Sean says something about Interstellar that could be perceived as a criticism. And there's an exchange in the book that reminds me of a conversation that I had with Andrew about uh, La La Land, which is a movie that I loved, but Andrew loved even more. And our conversation about La La Land amounted to this exchange between Tom Sean and Christopher Nolan, which was, um, you know, Sean saying, no, 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 I do, I do love it. And and Nolan responding, love it more unreservedly. Um, <laughs> but I, um, so I kind of like, it's interesting that like Nolan seems to have this, this personal attachment to it as well, which is fascinating. Because I, I think, I think Interstellar is a surprisingly personal work. For myself, um, this is interesting because I will answer the second question in a moment. 
I think I have a hard time justifying this being on the top 250 movies ever made. And I say that as somebody who thinks that this was one of the best, one of the four best movies of the 2010s. And I think that just because there's so much Nolan on the list, and I think that like, if you're going to have, you know, again, the list should be diverse, the list should be broad, it should include more work from more directors. I think you can make an argument for like the canonical, or what I would consider to be the canonical four Nolan films, uh, which are Inception. Well, you're going to include include The Prestige. You might even <laughs> include The Dark Knight, right? Yeah. <laughs> your, 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 wow. your list is not the, well, sorry, I should let you go with the, with the four. The, the canonical um, four does not include the dark knight rises thank you very much Andrew. Nice, nice try putting that in my mouth um, yeah. for me for me and again this is what i think based on like the discussion of nolan and kind of like how he's seen and the reception that the films had and the influence the films had i would argue the canonical four nolans and they're not my favorite nolans to be clear they're just the ones that i think about when i think about like nolan as a director with a cultural footprint memento the dark knight the prestige and inception um, I think those are like the big four Nolan films when it comes to 21st century cinema. And, you know, however I feel personally about Interstellar, and we'll get to that in a moment, I do kind of worry about that squeezing in in terms of making a list because I do think there's a lot of Nolan on there already. So I'd maybe hesitate at that. Yes, yeah. See, I th- second. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, go for it. Go for it. I was just going to say, I think these things shift. I mean, like, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, the, the Best Beatles album, for example, shifted in the 80s. It was to do with the excess of Sgt. Peppers in the 90s. It got more down to rock and roll with Revolver. Then, you know, it became Abbey Road. And now it seems to be the White Album. It seems to be, like, like, regarded as the definitive cool choice to make. And I think this stuff moves over time. So I think maybe a decade ago it would have been, yeah, Memento, absolutely key to understanding so much of the cinema around us. And now I feel like we've moved to the world of Interstellar, where Interstellar is actually much more representative of, you know, 2021. That's just the theory. Well, it's certainly, I would argue, reflective of Nolan's filmography. I think, like, it's like Interstellar and Tenant are a double feature, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, a long double double feature. Yeah, we'll kind of we'll we'll talk about that maybe in the in the spoiler zone. But second question, there, Andy, do you think uh, is Interstellar one of your own personal top two hundred and fifty movies ever? Oh, good question. Um, I might. No, I don't think it quite cracks it. No. But again, maybe, you know, with more consideration, more research, it might get in there because it does it does feel very current and very – I'm just very curious about this emotional power that it has because it does seem to have snuck up on all of us. And it's, you know, it certainly having read, you know, a, a fair bit about it over the last couple of weeks, it seems to have done the same trick to a lot of people where you, like, come for the spectacle and you're actually, you know, disarmed and, and taken by the, by the arch. The yeah. arc, sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, I might sneak uh, in there. And Andrew, what about yourself? Um, I'd say probably Rubber Soul. <laughs> um, I, I I I really like Drive My Car. Um, um, Norwegian Woods. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're cool. But yeah, I can't argue with that. No one can argue with that. <laughs> uh, no, no, it 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 kind of tapers off a little bit, bit after that, I guess. Andrew um, making the bid for the Beatles album from the twenty thirties, like the twenty thirties <laughs> yeah. Beatles album. <laughs> Um, no, I'd, yeah, yeah, it would it would it definitely would um one hundred percent um yeah n- 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 maybe maybe has more of an argument for being on my list than in being in the list um uh perhaps and it's a weird one because it feels very personal and it isn't yeah you know yeah 
it, it like it it really gets me and i don't I, like it shouldn't you know because i'm i'm you don't I'm have children the, and you don't leave yeah. them for extended periods of time to go and do your job exactly the themes don't speak to me but i am i am heartbroken for for him um and and what i mean by him is i i guess uh nolan he he's really kind of um communicated something very personal um you know perfectly and uh, as 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 andy says maximally yeah maximally <laughs> uh, yeah yeah um it's so it it's i love it yeah yeah absolutely and unreservedly yes for me um it would be in my top 250 it was i cheated in my like top movies of the decade and i was just like all four of nolan's movies from the decade are my favorite movie of the decade because darren you know is is very good at cheating when it comes to this but yes interstellar is is very much it for me it is a movie that i find incredibly moving it is what i look for in a blockbuster which is that it is big it's epic it's sweeping uh it's moving but it's also undeniably what cinema is again andrew's gonna take a drink take a shot on this one roger ebert's empathy machine um but but the idea of like using cinema as a mechanism to express your view of the world and how you see the world and more importantly how you feel about the world um and and like what that means to you and i mean obviously you know there's a whole swath of like world cinema is a large part of that indie cinema is a large part of that and it's rare to see a movie on this scale at this level costing this much running this long playing with these ideas and to be frank going through this production history because like again this was not a nolan movie originally this was a movie that his brother had written to be directed by steven spielberg and he came nolan came in and said actually i'd like a crack at that rewrote the script pretty much from scratch and basically retooled it and made it his own uh which is remarkable given that it feels so intensely personal and you read interviews with him and it is intensely personal to him. He talks at length about how, you know, not to get too spoilery, but how Cooper feels or what Cooper goes through is something that he relates to emotionally. Obviously, directing big budget blockbuster movies is not directly comparable to the mission that Cooper goes on in Interstellar to save mankind as a species without getting too spoilery. Or is it? That's yeah, a re- is it, or is it? Yeah, I mean, Nolan's only saving cinema. He's not saving mankind. No, or, or, or is he? <laughs> That's a very fair point. But no, uh, but no like that, that, that emotional immediacy of of the film is kind of something that I react to. And again, it's very similar to what Andrew said, which is like, I don't have kids. I don't leave them for extended periods of time. Now I do, I, you know, as a kid, I did move around a lot. I did move away from friends for extended periods. There were people in my family that I didn't see for long periods of time, but like that fear that runs through and it arguably runs through Nolan's entire filmography, the idea of the fear of time and the idea that we cannot master time and the time will always defeat us in the long run, no matter how clever we are about it, no matter how you know manipulative how we are around it, time always wins in the end. And again, you can point to things like, say, Inception there, for example, but even things like, you know, Dunkirk, where time so time is the enemy, you know, survival is, is victory. Uh, but even down to Tenant, where, you know, again, where time itself is kind of weaponized and used and characters struggle to understand how it flows. Um, that stuff is something that's very relatable to me as some, you know, and again, because I, I'm vaguely neurotic, um, because it's like, is time getting away from me? Am I wasting time? 
Am I spending my time as efficiently as I can? Am I investing it wisely? Will I look well, back on how I spent? That's for the listeners to decide. <laughs> that, that is very much for the, <laughs> that. It's a very valid point. But it's something if 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 they do feel that way, they can like fast forward <laughs> <laughs> and rewind. They can, you can actually play it at one and a half speed. Yeah, that's it exactly. Um, make me even more incomprehensible. Or you can play it slower <laughs> if you re- if you want to get more there yeah. uh, for your money. <laughs> no, but yeah, that that's that kind of like that theme resonates with me and kind of connects with me and i think you know i think one of our colleagues graham pointed out that like if you want to make me cry just show somebody who has done their job going home at the end of the day and that'll get darren right in the feels because he is a robot that generates movie opinions and then final final question before we jump into the spoiler zone andy if listeners have not seen interstellar would you recommend that they pause the podcast watch it and join us on the other side of the spoiler zone yes absolutely 100 percent. my god yes get out there and it's just it's, it's available. It's around the place. Um, I picked up a Blu-ray of it, which um, I was very glad I did. And um, yeah, the the special features, everything. Yeah, it's it's a, an incredible trip. You kind of have a more a deeper understanding of humanity, or at least Nolan at the end of it, which is good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and Nolan is a person. It turns out after all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> un- underneath it all, not a robot who directs movies. Um, yeah. I mean, I've I've even I've I've defended. We we talked for quite a while on on Inception, where I was defending the the kind of um, fridging um, of um, Mal um, of of Mal um, in 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 the movie. Jeez, it didn't speak well for me that I couldn't think of her name. <laughs> defending the fridging of what's her name? You know, you're one. <laughs> You know, a fridge one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wifey, um, dead wifey. Um, yeah, but the, but that the, but that that was a movie about um, kind of misogyny and and how it uh, how it affects uh, men. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, no, no. I mean, like, I I agree with that entirely. Like, it's very much deconstruct. Like, I would argue that Nolan and Inception is deconstructing his own storytelling tropes, and that includes the use of the dead wife as kind of leverage, um, and the way in which she haunts the films. And again, like, I think there's stuff to talk about when we get to like his later films, like The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, um, and Tenet about his use of women in those movies, um, because I think that you do see a shift happening. Um, and again, I think it's it's rather complicated, but maybe not a conversation for now. But, no, no. no but what, what what about yourself, Andrew? Do you think that uh, should listeners pause the podcast what, and watch Interstellar? Yeah, yeah, and um, like um, we'll we'll still we'll uh, like promise you'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> when Andrew? When? <laughs> Just uh, don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You don't know like, when we'll, they're coming we'll, back, we'll, Andrew. We'll, we'll be old men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still, yeah, talking yeah. Still talking about it. Still talking about it. And for myself, yes, absolutely. And again, I watched this um, with, as as Andy said, on a Blu-ray uh, with a home media setup that made the entire house shake. My neighbors, I'm sure, appreciated it. It is a stunning experience just as like a piece of craft. So if you can watch it, watch it on as big a screen as possible with as good a sound system as possible, like feeling the bass rumble through you. I think Andrew mentioned the soundtrack by Hans Zimmer. And it's notable that like when Nolan took over the projects, one of the first things he did was he met with Zimmer and he asked him to give him a day of work for the score. And he said, I'm just going to give you a note. And that note is going to have something written on it. It's just two lines. And the line is, I'm coming back when 
and apparently Zimmer wrote a day's worth of music around that theme and Nolan was like, yep, yeah, that's that's the heart of the movie. It is a movie that you really feel um, and I, I absolutely adore it. So yes, I would recommend uh, watching it if you have not already. And even if you have, maybe watch it now that you're a little bit older and see if it hits you in the same way that it does us. Um, all right then, with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! <laughs> What's your humor setting, Andrew? Um, uh, uh, all right, Andy! Yes. It's like 5% there. <laughs> Come on. Easy 20. Sadly, the cue light doesn't work as well in podcast form. No. Um, Andy, what yeah. is Interstellar about for you? Well, what I find it really interesting is can you guys remember seeing the trailer for it before it came out? Yes. Because it was the it was space race. It was basically the sixties space race, if I remember correctly, wasn't it? it was yeah, like the, the, the way that's what I find fascinating is the way it was marketed. It was like keep like in keeping what you were just talking about in mind of um, Nolan's you know uh, personal like the how he's seen. This, the, the way that this film was like set up. If you go back and watch it now, it basically looks like a man is on one side of the universe trying to get back to his daughter, and it's that it, it, <clears throat> sorry, and it's mixed up with this kind of space race vibe and. And so when you kind of went, when I went to see it, I was expecting it to be much more about that. But for the first hour, we're pretty much just in Dust Bowl America. Um, and yeah, I just found that really interesting because I was like, Burns. yeah, exactly. All the Ken Burns yeah. stuff. Yeah. Fascinating. Actually using cut footage from the documentary, which is mm, from the Dust Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is outstanding. Um, yeah, so it was, it was interesting to be kind of disarmed by that. For a little while, I was like, is this the right film? Have did I watch a trailer for something else that still hasn't come out? You're like, it just seemed very, um, you're like, very different. Um, but yeah, but but uh, it really it really does kind of open in this beautifully evocative way. And looking into the research of him wanting to find a place where they could have you know grow really good corn in, with mountains in the distance and all sort of stuff. Just the sheer production, you know, for that first hour alone is is something completely different. And I think that's where you see more of the Spielberg, like the the chasing the chasing of the drone through you know through malikian landscape and all that sort of stuff it's yeah it's very that feels very very much about a family being united by wonder and technology and all that sort of stuff yeah because i think there's an argument you could make that interstellar is perhaps nolan's most explicitly american uh kind of movie yeah in that i mean you know like memento and kind of you know memento and insomnia are westerns but they're very much kind of like noir, kind of like genre pieces. Then you have like his work on, say, Batman, where it's, again, Batman is a very gothic superhero, but he's always felt vaguely British and that like he was literally named for Robert Bruce. And, you know, Wayne Manor was shot basically in Britain as well. And the kind of like the sh even the shooting of The Prestige, which was shot between Los Angeles and Britain as well, I think. And then even with, say, Inception, you have this kind of international flavor where it's, you know, Paris that is bending in on itself and it's Japanese businessmen and it's a flight to Sydney that's taking place. Whereas interstellar is very specifically anchored in americana you mentioned like malik as an influence there this kind of norman rockwell kind yeah. of quality and one of the things that i love in terms of production and this is one of those like is nolan a robot that is designed to make movies the corn that they grew for the movie which they did using practical effects they actually sold it afterwards and made a profit on it um, which helped him like bring the budget in well under the target for the film which i kind of adore like in you terms know, of resourcefulness 
it's interesting actually that uh, more they they made most of their of the eight hundred million popcorn. Popcorn is very popular. How much the corn went for? Yeah. Do you think um, he signed each cob? Is... You know, as cob from <laughs> <laughs> as cob. <laughs> corn on the cob. He got Leo to come in and do like a little promo work. On. Come on, you can um, flog that for at least five figures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like it, it is very 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 strongly kind of americana it's rural america it's the heartland and it's kind of interesting you know the year before this nolan had worked as producer on man of steel for Zack snyder the retelling of kind of the superman origin story and while he wasn't necessarily usually involved in that he was much more involved with that than he was in the later movies and you can kind of perhaps see a straight line in that presentation of rural america in say man of steel through to interstellar where it is very romantic it is very you know nostalgic it's very much again mentioning the dust bowl going back to the great depression but what i find really interesting about the portrayal of like the american rural heartland in the opening hour of interstellar well a first of all how long it is how much of it there is in terms of like this nearly three hour movie you spend a third of it on the ground but the second thing is the parts of it that have aged i think very interestingly and i think quite well which is this recurring motif of kind of like conspiratorial uh, mindedness and kind of like anti-intellectualism that's kind of suggested to be kind of festering in the American mindset. So things like when they go to school, when Coop goes to school and he meets Murph's teachers and they talk about how the moon landing was faked, which is a big conspiracy theory even now. She was your audience surrogate, wasn't she, Miss Hanley? She's, like, really unimpressed with the moon landing. Um, It's like, finally, somebody's talking truth to power. Um, But, I mean, there's a difference between being unimpressed with the moon landing and thinking the moon landing didn't happen, I would hope. Um, But even things like, say, the way in which they insist that, you know, Tom can't go to college. Tom has to become... No, and, like, the thing is that it's it's not that he has to become a farmer, because obviously he does have to become a farmer, but that going to college has no value when in contrast like the way the film presents cooper as a pilot who is educated um who knows machinery who's able to repurpose machinery he works on the harvesters um around the place for example he fixes them up he fixes up the drone like interstellar is very clear that like cooper's skills make him useful and make him a better farmer his engineering and his piloting experience and i kind of i think it's well it's his passion for farming yeah, clearly, like underneath it all, the fact that he just longs to be a farmer on some level or another. But I, I kind of find that portrayal of like the American heartland kind of interest. I think it's aged. Like if you look at if you look at Interstellar and watch it kind of six or seven years later now, and you look at like what's happening in the States in terms of the things that, that kind of are believed by certain portions of the population, the conspiracy theories that it shape and inform a lot of the dialogue. I I, I, I think you know, maybe it's reading too much into it. Maybe it's giving it too much credit, but it does feel very pointed, right? It does feel very on the nose, very social commentary. I think. Yeah, it does seem credit. like Ms. Hanley is probably in Congress now. <laughs> um, and but also all around, I mean, like the books are covered in dust. All this sort of iconography is really interesting, and I can't find any stronger way to be able to depict a world that has been telling us to leave for a while now and it is kind of given up than dust. I mean, it's just like the literal physical decay of something. It's, it's so strong. And the way that he was using it and filming it, like, you know, saying, you know, I think there was a day that it was raining during production and he was just like, yep, this, we haven't seen dust in rain before. We're going to film. This is great. And, you know, just the, the sheer how frustrating that production must have been, just having this fake dust everywhere. But it just looks phenomenal. And it's so, it's so entwined beautifully with that documentary footage. 
And like one of the things I actually really admire about Interstellar is how much it tells you, how much world building it does without like heavy labored exposition. So you can tell a lot about how the world is and like what happened to the world, that there were huge wars, that people died of starvation, that there are no livestock anymore, that, you know, corn is the only fruit that's growing. Um, just by kind of background details and these kind of like innocuous things, like little things like John Lithgow saying, I want a hot dog while looking around complaining about there just being popcorn yeah. at a ball game. Yeah. Like that detail tells you so much about how the world has changed, um, apparently between now and whenever Interstellar is set, which I find, again, f- people talk about Nolan, Nolan's gift for exposition, Nolan's exposition being very heavy handed. I think when we talked about Inception, well, we talked about like Inception being half the characters explaining the plot of the movie and half the characters doing the plot plot of the movie that they just explained to you yes perfect well, yeah. there, there there is some like like the the it it's not it's not such a light touch with exposition <laughs> i mean like he he um obviously like like tenet is very heavy with exposition as well but here like the the whole scene was with um um david's david i um sorry i do beg your pardon david Ayuelo. Um, yeah, and as the principal, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, that's kind of like it's kind of like, come on, Coop. Everybody knows you're an engineer. You <laughs> should fly with NASA. <laughs> like he's kind of like um, the world doesn't have any use for you anymore. That's not yeah, what we're yeah. about here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me just explain, kind of like what world we're in. Yeah. Um, because you seem to have not realized. <laughs> um, let, 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 let me kind of situate everyone. <laughs> just so we're aware. Might we're say for some reason not know all of this stuff. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I, it really did. It felt like that, though, didn't it? um that 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 scene um <laughs> i thought it handled it relatively I mean, elegantly considering i like this i like the scene in spite of that yeah. i love um coop's parenting yes yes <laughs> um um, when he's told to punish I, Murph like for like rejecting the conspiracy theories it's like so how are you going to deal with this at home and he's like well there's a baseball game happening there's going to be lots of sugary treats and sugary drinks so I'm thinking I might just take her and get her high on sugar and tell her how fantastic yeah. she is that's my fair I think Darren character. that you've attached more sugar to that story than there was <laughs> <laughs> I think your version is just like there's a big slushy machine yeah, yeah. well look like, everyone even just Stella must be so high on a high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just be like even more so than they are already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is in the bottles that John Lithgow and like Matthew McConaughey yeah. are drinking? Um, kind of during that. They, they keep pouring Gatorade on the soil, but nothing will grow. <laughs> um, in terms of kind of the the movie, and actually in terms of those sequences on Earth, what I think is is interesting. And Andy kind of like situated Interstellar in terms of like what's been described as the sad astronaut genre that followed. And we'll maybe talk about that in a moment. Movies like, say, Ad Astra, for example, First Man, movies along those lines. Arrival, I think Andrew singled out as well. And we'll come back to those maybe. But I think... Martian. Uh, the Martian as well, the following year as well. And The Martian has a very direct We, we can say direct. now. <laughs> yeah, we can <laughs> say that it also can. It also stars Matt Damon. Um, Matt Damon gets it's, Lost movie, uh, which is another way this feels like a pandemic movie. Didn't, 
didn't some um, kind of uh, magazine or website do like an accounting yes. of how much money has <laughs> been spent saving Matt Damon? Yeah, um, like getting him back from like you know France, Nor- yeah, getting him back from Normandy, getting him back from like you know Europe in the Bourne and uh, the Bourne movies, getting him back from uh, Mars in the Martian, and getting him back from literally another solar system in Interstellar. Um, yeah, and again, like I love that. Like during the pandemic, Matt Damon lived up to this by getting himself stranded in Dorky. Um. <laughs> in that's right. Yeah, the, the, do we have to pay to to to, to... <laughs> ship him home? Um, that, but, like before we talk about that, though, like, I find kind of interesting is Interstellar arguably arrived on a wave of kind of sixties nostalgia um, in the early 2010s. I'm thinking of things like say the election of Barack Obama in 2008, where he was like described as the black Kennedy by the German press. Uh, but like he got the endorsement of the Kennedy family. I think Ted Kennedy described him as like the spiritual successor to JFK. You had things. Darren, what? Darren, tell us about what the movie is about for you. Um, <laughs> like, um, okay. there, there's always a 60s um uh kind of wave isn't there well there was in the kind early of, in, in, you know in the, in the 80s it was sgt pepper <laughs> in the 90s it was... i feel like when you're picking your favorite beatles album it is always going to be a 60s wave just by default. Um, but i feel like no okay well you know in the 90s you had forrest gump which was a reaction against the 60s in the 2010s I think you had an embrace of kind of 60s optimism. You had things like, say, the reboot of Star Trek, for example. You had things like, say, Mad Men on television, which reconstructed the 60s as an era. You had shows like, say, Pan Am um, as well. You had like Doctor Who obviously celebrating its 50th anniversary as well on television and reconnecting with its own kind of 60s history as well. The Man from Uncle. Yep. Kind of. Yeah, that sort of. That be like an example of that. That would indeed. And again, like, I kind of find it interesting that you have, like, Interstellar. Is Interstellar a hopeful movie? I think it is. You know, I think like, is it a 60s optimistic kind of movie? Because it's about NASA. It's about reestablishing NASA. It's about going back into space. Well, it's it's about uh, empathy. um, Like the, the, there, there, there is this, that's what I meant earlier about um, Nolan himself trying to save the world. I feel like this is, um Nolan trying to contribute in some um small and probably inefficient way. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know the, if people enjoyed uh, that corn, Andrew. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but um no in 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 the sense that there there is um I I I think I think it does a decent job of being a um a message movie because I, I it it gets across true 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 John Nicko he's talking about how there was like six billion people and they all kind of you know wanted everything yeah you know the latest thing um yeah and that is the that is the way we are we are going to kill the world <laughs> um, but we all have iPhones and, and, so it's okay Andrew yeah yeah that that um but that and and the um what man says as well about how empathy rarely extends beyond our line of sight um and that like we're we're like when the end comes we're all going to be 
like trying to save our our our, our closest and nearest and dearest and are going to have no kind of global consideration at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, you for, could argue that for, like we're in that situation at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. with the, like with environmentalism. Yeah. Yeah. People are trying like. Um, well, with the vaccine. Yeah. Like people trying to get their themselves and themselves vaccinated first. Like, I mean, the scramble that you're hearing in tech, the scramble that you're hearing in Hollywood, all these people basically trying to get for themselves and for the people they know and their associates, dog walkers. Yeah, but, and, and that's what striving is as well, yeah. is, is, is trying to kind of like get as much for yourself as, as, as you can. It's like all of the kind of things that we've uh, as a society value, like kind of, you know, ambition and drive and these sorts of things. Yeah. They're not, they're not they're, like, um, it kind of, um, and I'm 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 not I'm not I'm not judging anyone like in any way that I wouldn't kind of apply to 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 myself on some level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But um, Andy, what about yourself in terms of like, do you see Interstellar as a movie that is say optimistic about the human condition that is hopeful? Because yeah, I it do. Deals with these... Sorry, yeah. no, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, did I find what I find interesting about Interstellar is the way that Nolan uses love here as this force um because usually it's manifests is grief or it manifests as somebody simply trying to keep a family together because he's you know obviously very driven by this idea of a parent-child relationship but here it seems to be like almost broken down into a scientific formula in that it just becomes this fuel for sacrifice for like you were saying you know this you know galactic empathy sort of thing the way where there is no there's never any question that there's going to be right up against, you know, every every single potentially limiting thing, gravity and time to be able to make this sort of sacrifice. So, yes, I do feel it. But I feel in a way it's almost – it's not like – never, it never feels triumphant at all. In fact, the last third of the film, now we're in spoiler territory, I suppose, we can talk about the Tesseract and, and you know, the watching the baseball game from the hospital window, all that sort of stuff. That all is so low-key, so surprisingly low-key. There's no, like, massive moment of, you know, euphoria – euphoria where you can kind of you know empathize with the huge challenge that's been overcome because it just feels there's so much workaday sense about the idea of space travel there's so much silence and there's so much you know just like watching Matthew McConaughey be very be a very good pilot and a very you know intuitive you know um engineer and so I think that is where kind of the hope is I feel like it's kind of buried in this this way where somebody who's good at their job is just put up against these extraordinary challenges and so it's never written on McConaughey's face or you know Hathaway's face so much, but I do think it's yeah it's ultimately very hopeful. I like this idea in it, and and like I I I kind of said a moment ago that that like I seem to kind of suggest that we're all doomed, but I do think this is a hopeful movie, and I think it it does give hope as well, um, because I I think there's an idea within it. And it, it it it's 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 interesting because it interacts with some of the other kind of things that the movie is about or suggests or kind of borrows from. But it's this idea of that we can be um, our own um, higher consciousness. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And and that um, there there the music of the uh uh film is is like the 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 main kind of like instrument or the thing that kind of marks this apart from other um nolan um 
uh, Hans Zimmer scores or or, or uh, like uh, as well from the Ludwig Göransson one um, from tennis is is the use of the church organ yeah. and I love all of the elements of the organ the idea of it um, being a way of us understanding kind of the almighty but this isn't a religious movie this is um, I think it's a spiritual and, movie and in some ways. Yeah, it, yeah. it is, but it, but it, but it's a like it feels about uh, it feels like it's about transcendent humanity, yeah. rather than um, God. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that and that and that it's it's and the other the other the other kind of interesting thing about the the use of the church organ is this idea that Hans Zimmer had of. Like, like one of the th- reasons he really liked the church organ for it, apart from like, like one one thing is that the in every if you use a synthesizer, what you don't get in every note is that breath, and that there's something kind of humane about it. But an, an, another thing about the church organ is that, um, in the movie Interstellar, in the world there. The height of technical kind of um, accomplishment are are these um, uh, uh, crafts like the endurance and like the the rovers and the landers that are going to a, another planet, and with the work that Murph is doing. But back in like the I guess seventeen, eighteenth, or nineteenth century, the height of technical accomplishment is these um, church organs, like the the and and the amount of mechanics um that goes into the the harmonics of them and and the idea of of that being kind of like their attempt to reach into um the cosmos i guess yeah i mean that you would know? be the loudest sound in the world i suppose besides maybe a waterfall or the roar of an animal or something that it would be possible to hear just that much air being moved through some of those organs and you can you 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 hear the breath, um, kind of le- like when 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 you listen to an organ, you c- you can hear the pipes, and like the air, um, uh, uh, move move moving through them. And while it's not an actual human breath, there's something kind of um, organic human about yeah. it that you don't get from from a um, a synthesizer, I guess. Yeah, just to. Bring that back. A couple of things that you kind of mentioned there in terms of like spirituality. I guess this is okay. Well, first of all, let's let's talk about the transcendence and, and the humanity of it because I think when I mentioned this and Interstellar feeling like companion pieces, um, they're very, very, very thematically interlinked in terms of their stories about the pa- the present engaging with the future. And in Interstellar, the idea is that at some point, human potential will manifest itself to such an extent that we will transcend time and we'll become these fifth dimensional dwelling beings and we will be able to construct this mechanism that will save ourselves and elevate ourselves and that we don't need to depend on God or we don't need to depend on anything outside of our own potential to realize. And again, there's that wonderful conversation between Brand and Cooper where she talks about how evil doesn't exist in the cosmos. Evil is what mankind brings with it. And you see that arguably with Dr. Man, the very subtly named character who will come, who, who will come back <laughs> to later on dr man he is, 
another bastard. <laughs> he really, he's the worst of us. <laughs> he really is. Like again, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it later. But like, the, like Doctor Man is the worst human being in the history of the world. Like the bit where he's like, "I want he you." Keeps on being described as the best of us. <laughs> yeah. that's right. Like that sequence. That sequence where Cooper is kind of like suffocating, and he's like, "I want you to know, Cooper. I'm going to take care of everybody. I'm going to save everybody for you." And then he's like, "Oh, I can't watch this. I'm sorry, Cooper. I just can't watch this." Yeah, it's yeah, like you fucking coward. Um, like to quote McConaughey but anyway sorry we'll, we'll come back to Dr. Man because I think there's a bit, bunch of stuff to unpack there but like the idea in Interstellar is that at some point human beings will be smart enough they'll be clever enough that they will get past these problems and they will save and again you know I mean Andy's quite right the final third of the movie is quite subdued you have to intuit from the final third that you know not everybody got saved Lots of people did, more people than would have got saved otherwise. But there's no way that that station, holding station near Saturn is holding people long enough or enough people from Earth that people aren't still going to suffer and die. It's still going to be horrific down on the planet for a very long time. But there is some hope there. And then I jump forward, you jump forward six years to Tenet. And Tenet is like, oh, by the way, mankind's future selves have decided that really we all need to die because of the planet that we've created for our children. There's The future is not going to save us. In fact, the future is going to condemn us. And I find that kind of contrast interesting in terms of looking at, say, Interstellar as a late Obama era movie and that wave of kind of like 60s pseudo optimism coming back versus Tenet emerging at the end of the Trump years, where it's just like, no, we have screwed up the planet enough that our children could justifiably decide that we all need to die. Um, and they would probably be justified in reaching that conclusion. And I find that kind of contrast between the optimism and the cynicism um, kind of striking. But to bring it back to, to what Andrew said there about transcendence and kind of spirituality and the idea of it as an almost religious film, because it absolutely is the church organ, the idea of the ghost, Murph's ghost that haunts her. Um, and again, much like the fifth dimensional beings turn out to be humans, the ghost that haunts Murph turns out obviously to be Cooper. And again, really clever script that rewards rewatching. The first thing that Murph says to Cooper at the start of the movie, I thought you were my ghost. And it's like, ah, I see you script. I see what you're yeah. doing there. Very <laughs> there, good. There's a lot of that stuff though, that, that rewards rewatching like, like um, uh, the granddad, John, John Nicko saying like, um, maybe uh, saying to Michael Caine, it's uh, brand professor brand. Maybe she can make a fool of you too. Yeah. Um, which 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 is great when you've seen the movie or when you've seen it a few times, and you realize, yeah, how that plays out, and then like even scenes, and again to tie it back into spirituality, that sequence where John Lithgow says, "Will you tidy up that dust when you're done praying to it as well?" But this idea that you know there is this belief, and I think Andrew mentioned this when we talked about Tenet. So to give Andrew credit for this, like I think when you talked about Tenet, you talked about Tenet as a movie that is in some ways about like trying to think of things that exist beyond the human capacity or current understanding of the world and trying to look at the world in a new way and trying to make sense of rules that govern the world that we don't necessarily exist within our comprehension, but which do exist. And I think Interstellar is a great example of that because you have like the whole thing where Coop sits down with Murph and he's like, you know, it's not enough to say you're scared of a ghost. You need to actually understand it you need to find out what it's telling you You need to figure out what it's communicating and everything kind of making sense even if we don't have the capacity to understand it yet which again is something very humanist it's it's like again it's it's something that is again you know 
I am religiously, I'm agnostic. I am open to the idea of religious experience, even if I don't necessarily consider myself to be someone of faith. But I do love that idea that there is something holding the universe together, even if we don't understand exactly what it is, even if we don't have the language to describe it or the mental capacity to understand everything that tethers it all together. There is some underlying kind of logic behind that. And I think that like Interstellar captures that beautifully by saying what holds the universe together is humanity. And the obvious point of comparison for Interstellar is a movie like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, it's very, very much a point of comparison. It's almost impossible when it came out to talk about Interstellar without talking about 2001 Space Odyssey. And again, if this had been a Spielberg film, it would have been part of Spielberg's wave of, you know, conversations with Kubrick. Movies like, say, um, you know, Minority Report or movies like, say, AI. Um, but now, because it's a Nolan film, it becomes a conversation between Nolan and Kubrick, where when Nolan became successful, and this is what I mean when we talk about Nolan pushing against his, how he's perceived and the public image of him. When Nolan initially kind of broke out, he was very frequently compared to Kubrick. And it particularly happened around Inception. And you saw a lot of articles in places like The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times that were like, Nolan is the next Kubrick or saying people are saying Nolan's the next Kubrick. That's really insulting to Kubrick. And this kind of banter that went back and forth. What I think what's interesting about Interstellar is it's basically Nolan almost saying directly to the audience, no, no, I am not Kubrick. I am very much not, I have a very different view of how the universe works. And if you look at, say, the differences between 2001 and Interstellar, so both 2001 and Interstellar are movies about alien intelligences that kind of reach out and try to make contact with mankind beyond their comprehension. In 2001, those intelligences are alien. Uh, in Interstellar, they turn out to be human. Um, but by the way, I love the shout out that like in 2001, the Stargate opens near Jupiter and Interstellar is like, no, 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 we're going a little further. Our Stargate opens near Saturn, just so you know we're going further. But like, even in, say, 2001, you have this kind of idea of the universe being cold and impersonal and mechanical. And the idea that like the most human character in 2001 is Hal, the robot that goes completely insane and tries to murder everybody. Whereas in Interstellar, you have the two robot characters played by Tars, as well, not played by Tars and Case, playing themselves, uh, played by Bill Irwin um, doing the puppeteering for them. But Tars and Case, who are these two robot characters who, despite like a single joke about slaves from my robot colony, never like try to murder anybody, never malfunction, never go insane as you expect them to in a science fiction film. Instead, it's mankind that goes insane. It's man who goes insane. Man is the character kid, who... Kid. Kip does kill Ramalee. <laughs> Indirectly. I don't think you can really hold Kip to account for that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think man is like, Kip, what have you done? Yeah. <laughs> I closed Kip down because I knew this would happen. He'd been talking about it for weeks. I didn't think he'd ever actually follow through on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, like I, I find that kind of interesting because like... And particularly, Kip's eyes just uh, glow red yeah. <laughs> as he turns on. Yeah, his cute light. Finally, finally. Little red prom cute light. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I kind of, I do find that interesting because it's like, again, the perception of Nolan as a director who isn't very feeling, who isn't very emotional, who isn't very emotive, who's cold, who's rational, who constructs these movies that are largely seen as intellectual puzzle boxes. And to me, Interstellar feels like Nolan pushing back again that very consciously and very deliberately and saying look i do have feelings am i the uh yes yes and no 
though. No, like like I I'd completely agree with you, but I I see I see how this movie just compounds that <laughs> vision of him as well. Because there, 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 there are plenty of people for whom this movie doesn't make any sense, and like the, you know, um, like not, not unintelligent people, either. Yeah. Like, but, um, but like I love this kind of stuff. You know, that that yes. that's why I'm going to, um, uh, you know, connect with. And either understand or try to understand these movies, and it's not going to check me out. It doesn't make me more intelligent than than people who don't like connect or understand or get it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it it does it it. I don't think I don't like while 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 it's possible. I think for for myself and ourselves to rewatch this movie and connect more and more emotionally with it. I think um, it's it it's a lot of people's experience that they just do kind of check out and never return to it because because it, it's 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 kind of um, it's overly technical and it is that puzzle box that that they that they don't quite kind of um, connect with get to grips with or want to yeah um, but Andy what about yourself in terms of like that that idea of kind of Nolan's persona and kind of the perception of Nolan as a director and whether Interstellar either plays into that or kind of deconstructs it. Do you do you think? I that... think it's there. I think that just works on so many different levels. I mean, a lot of the reviews at the time when it came out were like, this is almost a masterpiece. Like, there are so many great ideas here. And over time, it seems like um, that more that we get to know Nolan or the decision, we get to see the decisions he made after Interstellar, the more we kind of can't help but say, well, yes, you know, it's much more than just the director as an astronaut kind of story, a man trying to spend more time with his family, you know all these sorts of fairly rote ways of looking at it because I think he is so in love with this idea of science as as the religion, which I think is kind of touching on what you were talking about before, that this is there is a way that we can understand the universe and part of that understanding is love and is hope and, you know, is this idea that humanity, you know, is kind of uh, is, is able to make these huge decisions because we have this, you know, capacity for reason and the ultimate expression of that is to be able to understand how the universe works. And so I think, um, yeah, there is that way you can kind of see that, that Nolan is, you know, is a huge fan of these big ideas. But also I think in the other films we see these big ideas um, explained by Michael Caine or explained by different characters. And Nolan is clearly loves the, cinema, the cinematic potential of a conversation about really big ideas. But here we seem to get a lot of the um, exposition that's necessary. Well, maybe, it, you know, it's, part, it's, it's certainly necessary to get one of those layers of the way that the, the, the success that the film operates on, I think, down is to be able to share that exposition amongst lots of different characters. And we haven't really talked much about the cast yet, but there's such a deep cast of, like, you know, really yeah. great actors in really small roles because clearly everybody at this point was like, sure, Nolan, yeah, yeah, I'll, um, I'll carry the coffee, you know, whatever. Yeah, one line, no problem. <laughs> you know, he could pretty much choose whoever he wanted to be in the film. And, um and I think yeah, that's part of what makes this so effective on another level entirely is that he decides to make it, like you were saying, you know, an American film with McConaughey in it. And so you can get this, see this story of Nolan as a, you know, through his personality and have this be a really personal film, but also it being the, the most massive scale film he's done yet with this quite, you know, large cast and, you know, the, this huge spanning of time as well, which, you know, of course is extremely important to understanding Interstellar. I love the to to your point there about time, um, Andy, and the the use of time in this. I really like the idea of 
that and by the way like it didn't this story didn't have to take place in like the 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 worlds that they traveled to didn't have to be in the vicinity of a black hole and kind of they like like it it doesn't really make sense for them to be in the vicinity of a black hole in terms of kind of um finding viable life yeah. you know but in in thematically yeah for the purposes of the film it makes it it makes such beautiful it makes such a beautiful point because of the way that time passes differently for children than it does for adults and the 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 the, the thing the thing that he repeats that his um that Murph's mother said that we're just here to be memories for um for our kids the the small time for us that 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 like passes very quickly for us that we give that that one gives to their children are are like the the you know that that's they're 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 not like like another kind of you know portion of your life it's not like like giving the those say 18 years say or more that 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 you give to a child um that it feel yeah it's just subjectively a much longer time for them um and 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 similarly um the time you spend away from them is much longer for them than it is for you. So so I I I really I I I think it's I think it's extremely clever this the 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 kind of um the use of of um you know temporal shifting. Well f- uh, physics as metaphor again kind of which is which is so yeah. beautiful. And I mean even things like say the fact that both of the planets that they land on uh man's planet um and wolf's planet are both sorry not wolf's planet but the the first planet they land on are water planets and again water being a major recurring motif for nolan think of say you know the near drowning in insomnia the uh dr- actual drowning at the start of the prestige as well the ice in the dark night rises uh the water in dunkirk and the idea that like drowning is thematically associated again Nolan's one of Nolan's favorite movies Heat has a conversation between De Niro and Pacino where they talk about I have that dream again where I'm drowning you know what that's about yeah it's about not having enough time so even that is kind of woven in when you land on planets that are made of ice and made of water it's very much kind of like structured to reflect that and I actually really really love that aspect of it because again so much of of Nolan's films are intensely subjective and again we mentioned that theme of like faith and belief and spirituality and and like looking beyond the self like one of nolan's big themes is the idea of is is there an existence it's kind of you know solipsism is probably the kind of you know way of describing it but the idea of is there a world beyond a person's subjective experience of reality and again like in memento you have scenes where leonard talks about how it's important for him to know that the world is still there when he closes his eyes or that when he picks up an object that it has weight and mass and substance you know in in the prestige you have the whole argument about like he the characters need to know not only what they see but also what other people experience or how other people do things things that exist beyond the capacity to understand or to know 
And again, I like with Interstellar that Nolan finds a way to weave that metaphor that you mentioned of the passage of time, of time passing differently for different people, and using the theory of relativity um, to make a $700 million blockbuster that is basically about how your your child's life passes in a blink of an eye in front of you. And again, it's worth noting... Nolan has been quite candid about this. This is very much a film that he made for his daughter. I think its production name was Flora's Letter, Flora being his daughter. She has a small appearance in the movie as well uh, when Murph is driving away from the farm and when she decides to turn back, it's Flora that she sees on the couch on the back of a truck that inspires her to go oh, back. Oh, yeah, and, right. Which oh, is, wow, which, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah that, that, that's kind of... It, it's... Um, you, you like that it feels um significant it's not just and it, it doesn't when you're looking at it it doesn't feel like just another extra yeah it's either well the way the camera kind of looks at her as well like the camera is like this is important and again the fact that like and again just very quickly in terms of production uh this was originally written by jonathan nolan to be directed by spielberg and the script was radically different um it would have had a very different ending there was like a subplot involving antagonistic kind of chinese astronauts that was cut entirely as well but the big plot point that nolan kind of changed was that originally it was just about coop and about tom and it nolan came in and he wrote the character of murph and he made murph arguably kind of like the pro uh, the co-protagonist of the movie and like again one of the things that Nolan does really well in all of his films is cross-cutting. Um, this idea of kind of like cutting across things happening either at different times in different places. And again, yeah. like with, with The Dark Knight, it's kind of stunning because The Dark Knight is like, well, he has to, like doing things linearly, he has to make sure that things are happening in different places at the same time. And it's a kind of a logical problem for him. But here with Interstellar, it's arguably as abstract and emotional and metaphorical as it has ever been, where you cut between coop and man wrestling on the surface of the planet to murph like trying to save her kind of nephew um and trying to kind of like rescue her kind of her brother's family from him and the idea that like these events are separated by light years uh by you know aren't necessarily even happening at the same time but they're cut together like with a rhythm that just makes those scenes work which I, I find I, I'm, I'm constantly impressed at how well those sequences work, despite having very little tying them together materially. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, it, oh, sorry. No, go. No, go, go I was ju- I was okay. just laughing that the uh, the the extent to which the movie is about his relationship with Murph, because <laughs> there's a moment where he comes into a room that's like full of all of his ancestors. <laughs> Maybe even including Tom. Maybe Tom is there. <laughs> maybe the guy, maybe the kid Coop is also there in the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was named after him. But, but he... they ignore him and he ignores them. <laughs> and then he just leaves. <laughs> yeah. Like, you do really feel sorry for Tom. Like, you get the sense of why Tom ended up so messed up. Because it's like, yeah, Coop's just like, so where, where's my daughter? I just want to know that my daughter's okay. <laughs> Tell me that my daughter's fine. It's like. What about Tom? Ah, it's grand. I'm sure he's He'll be fine. Yeah. He's in a farming. Yeah. He's, he's enjoying. He got a truck, he's right? Not, he's nothing like me. I don't like him. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, do I feel think... a bit Timothy Shella meh about him. Really. Um, <laughs> sorry, cut you off there, Andy. Sorry, Andy. Yeah. I was just gonna say. I think that's this is part of the weaker, probably the weakest part of the film for me, at least, is just the way that you know Ellen Burstyn has gone through hypersleep, has travelled you know light years to be able to see him again, and they're like, hey. Yeah, well, anyway, you should go off and, uh, you know, hang, hang out with Anne Hathaway. Go, go and find Brand. And he's like, sure. 
and that's pretty much it. <laughs> and what? I was like. <laughs> I do actually like I think that's probably like my biggest legitimate criticism of the movie and I say this to somebody who loves it is that like if you are reading this as Nolan navigating his relationship with his daughter and again he has said this in interviews he's talked in interviews about this is not me pulling like a Spielberg on it it's not I'm not reading subtext into it this subtext is provided if you read it that way. Like, there's something just a little bit too kind of self-comforting about, you know, the dad showing up after being away for decades, visiting his daughter as she's dying on her deathbed, and her saying, you know what, you go have fun, you go do your stuff, I'm okay, don't worry about me. It does feel a little bit like he kind of lets Coop off the hook a little bit. Totally, yeah, yeah. Well, Coop Coop still has to make a spaceship. (laughs) 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 <laughs> like it's it's you know the, his 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 struggles aren't over. Yeah. He has to somehow steal a spaceship. Space <laughs> um, midlife crisis. Space dad hey, midlife crisis. <laughs> don't don't try to understand it. Just feel it. <laughs> um, you know you know what I you know what I like about kids, Andrew. I keep getting I keep staying the same age. They keep getting older. Um, <laughs> sorry, Andy, we got you off there. Oh no, you didn't. You just cut off, cut me off laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, now what? What do you like in terms? Like, is that fair to say that it is kind of? It does feel a little bit like the movie lets Coop off the hook towards the end, with that kind of like with that. Oh, yeah. it's grand. Yeah, and the the fact that it's celebrated, isn't it's named after him, isn't it? That the outpost he's in. Yeah, no, like it, well, it's named after her. To be fair, her, like sorry, it, yes, I, did, yeah. I, I actually really like that. I really like the joke that it's like you didn't have to name it after me, and it's like actually we didn't. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and then I love, the, I love that we get Tars again as well right at the end, and the whole idea that his his place is a museum is a kind of a very yeah. I don't know, it's a very Spielbergian touch. That kind of keeping a little place for nostalgia in the past. Yeah. Um, in terms of actually, we should probably then talk about like the rest of the cast because we talked a lot about Cooper and Matthew McConaughey, and I think like the casting of McConaughey is is very clever because like again, casting McConaughey is very different than casting DiCaprio in Inception, where DiCaprio always seems sweaty and uncomfortable, whereas McConaughey always seems very comfortable and very casual with what he's doing, and I think that works really well. But I think what's interesting about Interstellar, and again, this is probably something where Darren, where I'm going to be vaguely controversial, is that I think. We mentioned Inception and we mentioned Nolan's kind of like fridge dead wives kind of thing that happens quite a bit in his early films. It's there in Memento. Um, it's, you know, there in, say, The Dark Knight, even to pick an example. It's there repeatedly in The Prestige. Um, and I mean, I say that loving all of those movies, but you get like in Inception, you get a little bit of criticism of that, a little bit of self-awareness around that. And kind of, again, the idea that if you're reading Coop as an authorial stand in, it's like, yeah, maybe you need to get past that. And I think that what you see in the films coming after uh, Inception, so like The Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar, is you see Nolan at least trying to kind of push a little bit outside of that comfort zone, where I think you can make an argument that, you know, Jessica Chastain, Mackenzie Froy, Ellen Burstein's Murph Cooper is possibly a cro- a po- uh, sorry, a, a co-protagonist as opposed to a pro-cotagonist um, of this movie in that like she gets her own arc. She gets her own little flow. In the end, she's the one who gets the kind of station named after her. She's the one who kind of... She, she is the protagonist. Though. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of like in, in the sense of like the clever thing about the movie is that it's playing with Nolan's own kind of um, accusations made against him, where where 
Coop thinks he's the um, protagonist. Yeah. yeah. And he isn't. Because yeah. he he didn't save the world. Murph did. Yeah. Um, and and um, or he was away um, and his his contribution wasn't in what he did but in the in the child he raised and the way the the it's it's speaking back into the past um to to rescue the future by through his relationship as a as 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 a parent yeah rather than as an child. astronaut or a pilot yeah that he's not the future his uh, his child is the future. Um, and so I I I I thought that was kind of I thought that was quite um quite kind of clever. And it, it he managed. I think I think Nolan manages to have his cake and eat eat it. Yeah. Because he has that strong um male uh protagonist, but also undercuts um that whole um kind of. Archetype or trope or convention. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it is worth again. Um, actually, do you want to say anything about Murph there? Actually, Andy, do you have any kind of thoughts on? Uh... Um, not especially about Murph. I guess it's interesting in that uh, we like previously Leo had seems to have been styled to look like Nolan. Is you know, there's so yes. much of a standing going on there. But we with McConaughey. I mean, I gather he was cast off seeing Mud, an early version of the movie Mud. I'm not sure if you've heard that same thing, but. Um, and I think you know there was a bit of pushback because he was like, no, 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 McConaughey's the right person for this role. And um, I think the studio were a bit like, oh, are you sure? Because he hadn't really, hadn't really started anything like that before. But I think yeah, the reconnaissance um, had yet to really yeah. kind of sweep the board. Like he just, I think he'd, he'd done, was it Wolf of Wall Street the year before? He'd done like a small cameo in that. You mentioned Mud, but like I think Dallas Buyers Club was still to come. True Detective was still to come. Well, yeah, I think that stuff that had been, rec- I think like Dallas Buyers Club, I think had been filmed, but it hadn't been released yet maybe or yeah. Something along those lines, um, but yeah, it is kind of fascinating to see just how that kind of flowed in, and just how strong he is in this. How he balances like so much of the emotional, like this, the scenes, like you know, where he's watching the videos, where he's catching up on twenty three years of missed videos from time. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. that stuff. Yeah, but I like one after the other, and I I feel like Casey Affleck and Jessica Chastain deserve some credit. In both those scenes as well, but um, McConaughey just um, like he he is definitely um, I think in front I I I I get the impression they all are, and I guess uh, I guess that's what you do when you're an actor, but it it really comes through the screen, you know. The emotion yeah. of 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 that, I, I can't watch that without crying. Yeah, no, I, I the same uh, reaction, one yeah. one after the other. Yeah, yeah, and then the twist where she finally turns up, when you think she's not going to. Be. That's and then that's your first glimpse of Chastain. Yeah, it's such a fantastic moment. Yeah, and like the jarring transition, the sense of how much time has passed as well. Um, we should probably actually talk about like Brand as a character as well. Um, the character played by Anne Hathaway, carrying over from The Dark Knight Rises in terms of Nolan's uh, kind of cast or kind of troupe. And I think there's no Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this. <laughs> no, no. When, I, I figure like they they could easily have cast um, him instead of um, Wes Bentley. 
No, no, I was thinking like ovens <laughs> instead of Topher Grace. <laughs> I think to- to- Topher Grace and Joseph Gordon-Levitt are probably friends. So it's possible <laughs> that 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 Joseph Gordon-Levitt was like, hey, um, my fr- my friend Topher. Um, Could really use a Lego. I mean, I know Spider-Man yeah. 3 was 10 years ago. I think like he deserves another go. Um, but I mean, <laughs> I feel bad for Topher when when he's holding that um, oh, tire sorry. iron outside. I'm like, what? Is, what is, like this isn't going to end well, well for Topher Grace. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the I don't fancy him in that fight. No, not um, not not at all. Um, but hey, at least he can probably fix himself up afterwards. Um, yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, Murph. Uh, see something in him. Yeah. In fairness, Topher Gray- Grace seem- seems like a cool guy. He does. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I but but I I think he'd be the first to admit. That. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, in a tire and iron fight with Casey Affleck, he's not he's not lasting especially long. Yeah, like who's gonna go more crazy? Yeah. I I feel like Manhattan. I was uh, sorry, Manchester by the Sea, starring Topher Grace, is a very different energy. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. um, but. That, okay, so let's let's talk about like brand because again, I think again this Sorry. this uh, no 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 um this idea of kind of like Nolan playing with his tropes and playing with his image of himself and playing with the idea that audiences have certain expectations. One of the most criticized aspects of Interstellar, uh, one of the ones that arises the most eye rolls from people, and again, perhaps understandably, is that big speech that Doctor Amelia Brand, a NASA science and astronaut, gives about love being a force that works on a galactic level. Um, And it was in the trailer, and when it appeared in the trailer, it was a source of much derision. And I think today, a lot of people who don't necessarily glom to Interstellar will still point to that as an example of, like, what they see as the film's most egregious kind of flaw. Um, I I kind of have have thoughts on that, but what about you two? How do you guys feel about that speech in that moment? Because it's one of the iconic moments, for better or worse, from the film. I feel like I had... In, in the like when we were talking about inception it would get brought up a lot and i had a picture of it as like more egregious than it was i felt like <laughs> watching it kind of the, the last few times i've seen it it feels more kind of modest and reasonable what she's saying and 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 any any time before that it was it was always described as her saying kind of like as as being this ridiculous thing where she's like, um, love is the most powerful um, uh, force in the universe. It's um, it's more powerful than gravity. And but no, I I I I didn't I didn't I didn't find myself coming out of it um, coming out of the movie like or or, or or feeling like there was anything wrong with it. What 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 about you, Andy? Well, I remember in when I saw it in IMAX, it felt like there was a collective eye roll in the cinema when that line came out because I think we all yeah. were waiting for it to come and it had already yeah the, the memes had already gone around. Um, and I think it is there seems to be an egregious line in every Nolan film at some point, like the whole world is going to die. Does that include my son from Tenet? Like that sort of stuff where you can just go well. What is this doing here? Like he's obviously fantastic a storyteller, but the dialogue stuff I feel like sometimes he needs to outsource because there is this, there is this I don't know slightly disappointing lack of trust. I feel like where there is this need to overexplain things. Like he's fallen in love with this the concepts and he wants to bring everybody along on those amazing concepts and show how he can use them in this really interesting cinematic way and tie it back to family and love and all these really you know things that tr- cross cultural barriers really really well. You know everybody kind of gets this stuff. 
But um, and maybe it plays differently in other areas. But I felt like this is an example where somebody else needs to go through and do a script edit because I was like, we don't need that line. We don't need to understand absolutely every single thing that you're telling us. We get it. We can see it. You're a fantastic visual storyteller. It feels like he needs to have more trust in those abilities. Um, and so I think it's interesting when he has taken other people's scripts, um, like you were saying, the development of this script. You know, he pretty much rewrote it um, after. Uh, I think, you know, Linda Obst and Kip Thorne, I think, came up with the idea originally and then Jonathan Nolan rewrote it. Jonah, I believe we've got to call him. Um, yeah, and so I feel like I wish somebody else could have gone and just gone, mm, do we need that? No, I think we're fine. Because there are certain things that, like, it is kind of strange that these um, other characters are also explaining things in these very visual, easy-to-understand ways, like, as well as brand. You know, we also get... um Romney explaining the wormhole is it? Yeah, yeah. Is a sphere in in three dimensions? What's a circle in three dimensions? Yeah, that sort of stuff. Like, um, I mean, I guess maybe there are better ways of explaining it. Or that you know, I feel like somebody else could have just done a bit of snip. I mean, I think it's a shame because there are such great ideas here, and it's very, very easy just to pull that line out and go, "Lol, look at this." You know, um. And I um, mean, when you mentioned that exposition, the sequence where Cooper actually at one point produces a whiteboard to draw yes. <laughs> the orbiting that they're going to do to explain how this I like I like that as, as the kind of like idea of like the the pilot kind of like who's also the engineer yeah. but who who um who's kind of like you know fi- finding solutions to things yeah I've, i feel i feel like the interaction that they have with like kind of between himself and brand and um and 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 Romilly, um feels like a you know like a genuine workplace kind of interaction yeah. between people who are very kind of good at their jobs um, competent even even though they have the survival <laughs> instincts of a, of a boy scout true. troop yeah <laughs> uh, what i will say actually and again and, like that sequence where he draws on the board again it's something you see quite often in nolan scripts i'm thinking of like the sequence where in inception where dicaprio or sorry Cobb explains to um ariadne that you know that they have basically um that like you create and you create and inhabit the world of the dream at the same time and he draws again on a napkin um, so you have that kind of like the use of diagrams, which I find an interesting Nolan trope. Sorry to cut you off, Andrew. Oh, no, 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 no. I, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> which one? <laughs> Andrews. Yes. Um, no, you, but, you go, sir. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I, 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 I was going to say I quite like um, Nolan's um, dialogue. I, th- I, I think when you compare him to kind of other. Um, big filmmakers who who kind of write and direct movies like like um like i think i've said before that i i don't really like james cameron as a as 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 a writer i find, I find her all sort of like um a bit corny um like as corny as this is but the 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 there there's I I I like a lot of the kind of lines in this. Like like the the, the, the he says what 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 happen what happens if the if um if the, if the airlock is open? This is like nothing good. <laughs> and yeah. in, in in fact, a, a lot of the great lines go to to, to, Tars to and robots. Case, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 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 it, the, um. I think Taurus is another one where it's like um. Uh, what what what's your trust what's setting. your trust setting? <laughs> Lower <laughs> than like, yours, uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and but like I actually small detail that I really love is that like Nolan actually takes pains to distinguish Tars and Case. They're both played by different act. They're voiced by different actors. It's Josh Stewart yeah. who uh, who appeared in The Dark Knight Rises and who also appears as a voice in Tenet. Apparently, uh, Nolan really likes Josh Stewart's voice, which is interesting. But I love that like. Tars and Case both, like, despite being the same robot, basically, have completely different personalities. Where Tars is, like, sassy, exuberant, outgoing robot who is perfectly willing to make, like, terrible jokes. That sequence, like, the the wonderful sequence where, um, you know, Coop's like, you know, so I want to talk about the, uh, the, uh, the, the orbit again. Let's talk through it. He's like, you already know this. It's like, so is there something going on with Brandon Wilson? Why are you whispering? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Case, Case is more like, you know, uh, the sequence where he's like, you, you don't talk as much, you know, as, as Tars. It's like, I find Tars talks enough for both of us. It's like yeah. kind of love. The workplace comedy of Tars and Case just managing the ship while the crew are kind of in stasis. I like that the characters are that really delineated. Yeah. And then there's how. <laughs> just singing Daisy, Daisy, do. Yeah, Daisy. It just blows up. Yeah. <laughs> like. um, what I wanted actually just to bring it back to that kind of like love moment with, with Bran, because I think this is important. I think this gets at something that Nolan is trying to do with Interstellar. I think he does it relatively well. Uh, and I think, you know, again, but I am a guy who literally wrote a book on Nolan and I'm pre-declined, you know, pre-inclined to say that I really like how he does this thing. But like one of the the kind of standard criticism of Nolan as a director is that he is very conventionally macho or masculine, that he's very hard, rational, hard, scientific, kind of like very rigorous. And again, that, that cliche that we have of being emotionless. But like one of the interesting tensions that you have between Coop and Brand and that argument they have after the first the trip to the first planet where they only have enough fuel to go to either man's or wolf's planet and basically the the sequence in which coop accuses brand basically of being overly emotional which again is, is something that is a very gendered argument and like as brand points out immediately afterwards coop is being just as emotional he's making that argument because he's factored in a return trip because he wants to get home to see his kids because that's his priority he is not being as objective as he pretends to be and I find that sequence fascinating you know in in the context of like pop culture science fiction in the 2010s because around the time that this was happening you had you know movements like say the sad puppies at the hugos the rabid puppies at the hugos you had things like say gamergate happening where it was this big push to delineate certain aspects of culture that had traditionally been seen as male spaces to exclude non-male voices and in particular the way that you did that was you had in gamergate the argument for objective reviews that you know reviews shouldn't talk about things like how media makes you feel or how you respond to it emotionally or kind of you know what you think that it's connecting with thematically it's just be like no 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 the camera was pointed straight at the object everything was in focus there are no plot holes in this movie therefore the movie is perfect and i find it kind of interesting that while this was happening you had nolan taking science fiction which is has in many ways been coded, particularly hard science fiction. This is so hard science fiction that like Kip Thorne discovered how how black holes work by using modeling from this. This is so rigorous in terms of its science that you take hard science fiction where you have a literal character named Dr. Man, who is the best of us, who talks about the importance of not having any emotional attachments to anything or anybody 
beyond your purpose and your goal, uh, who lives on a world, I think man actually describes his planet as harsh and cold. And he stops just short of saying like rugged and manly. Um, but you have this idea in Interstellar, like, and it plays between Coop and it plays with man and it plays with Brand. This tension between this idea that human beings should present themselves as inherently rational and emotionless, that they should be pseudoscientific, that they should present themselves in a way that is very straightforward and doesn't allow room for concepts that are traditionally feminine, like love or affection or attachment or, you know, emotion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's lacking that attachment for man that forces him to kind of sublimate in really perverse ways. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, that's it exactly. Like, like man's argument is that, and again, it, it's something that you hear with this objective kind of argument where, man, you know, it's like, no, we sent people without attachments into the void because they wouldn't feel any urge to go home because they could just focus on the mission. And then what happens with man is because he doesn't have any human attachments, because he doesn't have anybody on earth, because he doesn't have anybody who will be affected by his decision, he just has himself. His primary concern is saving his own skin. As he says, you know, if I push that button, somebody would come and rescue me. If he doesn't have any emotional attachment to anybody but himself, why wouldn't he push that button? Like, and I, I think the movie kind of plays with that. Because I think, like, the movie makes the argument that Brand, Brand is ultimately right. Like, in that, like, it should, they should have gone to Wolf's Planet instead of Man's. They should have trusted love and emotion. And Cooper's, Coop and Man in doing, and again, very gendered, very stereotypical masculine thing of pretending to be objective, of pretending not to be emotional, because emotional is a very gendered term in these arguments, are actually making more dangerous decisions, are actually making decisions with more serious consequences in the longer term, as opposed to doing what Brand does, which is to say, no, my decision is based on emotion, but it's also based on these other factors. And I'm going to put these thoughts out there and I'm going to acknowledge that this is how I'm making this decision. And it's more honest about it, which I, I find interesting in terms of kind of the movie. But perhaps am I reaching too much? Am I being too generous in the movie? Am I seeing something that isn't there? No, I, I, I'd agree with that as well. And I, I think I think Cooper kind of realizes it too. I, I, I think... Um, Coop's farewell, which was the fifth time I cried during the during the detach yeah. um of the of the second module. Um uh, he has kind of in, in that moment in that moment I think appreciated um what he's kind of taken from um Brand. From Brand. Yeah. And is, is, um, is kind of wi wi wishing her well. Um, and um, it's also, it, it's in, in, interesting as well. Um, one criticism that I haven't heard that I guess you could make is the whole kind of gendered idea of Brand really cares about um, all of her hundreds and hundreds of babies. <laughs> you know, it's 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 that 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 um, 
uh, her no nobody else in 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 the movie um at any point kind of pulls out all of these um babies and kind of holds them in 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 their hands yeah in the way that that um, bran does when she talks about plan yeah. b for example like it's like yeah, it, like her yeah. her father her father talks about plan a and she talks about plan b sort of thing which again sounds Isn't like some sort plan of con- b the morning <laughs> after <laughs> to say, it does sound like some sort of contraception yes um but like and the f- one of the things I did, I did make a note of this in terms of dialogue. The film is very clear, though, that they do have the technology that they can raise the, the babies outside of wombs. So it's not just going to be Brand working as a surrogate nonstop no, on this. No, no, no. But there, there, there will be some surrogates. There will be eventually. There, mm. there, there, will, be, there will be 10, um, uh, I think. First generation and then, and for, yeah. and then exponential. And then there, there will be surrogacy. Yeah. So the, the um, uh, but presumably she is going to bear a child. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It would be it would be it would be strange if she had excused herself from that. Yeah. Um, that's that's fair, I think, and it is like again in terms of this kind of gender thing as well. It's worth contrasting with say Tom and Tom and Murph. Like again, Tom is presented as this kind of very strong patriarchal authority, where he's very much again how things are run in his household and not brooking dissent, and the the way in which his family is presented as completely subservient to him as well, mm. very traditionalist. Yeah. Like the way in which his wife doesn't seem comfortable speaking when he's in the room, uh, for example, and things like that. And again. The, the, I think Andrew kind of jokingly referenced the juxtaposition that you have between Topher Grace and Casey Affleck. But I, I do think that's that's kind of intentional where, you know, you have Murph and you have kind of Getty, the kind of character played by Topher Grace. And the way in which their relationship is played is is very much kind of like reversing that stereotypical gender dynamic where she's she's the assertive kind of strong one in contrast to to him who appears again maybe more traditionally kind of feminine and then contrasting that with the stereotypical archetypal he's in the kind of caring profession as well yeah Mm. and he he also just seems more kind of gentle and caring and emotional in general like in the small conversations that you have he's the one who seems particularly sensitive whereas murph will go straight to the you're going to bury your kid out back again uh sort of like you know nuclear option in terms mm. of kind of comfort yeah. Yeah. It's very harsh yeah yeah just just a little bit harsh um, and like <laughs> i i love by the way again the the film's kind of economic use of exposition dialogue where you see Casey introducing his first child and he's like, maybe we'll call the next one Coop. And then the next time that you see him, there's only one child at the table and the child is called Coop. Mm. Um, and like, and the movie, yeah. the movie does. Where he talks about Jesse in, in the, in the call. Yeah. Um, that he makes. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. Yeah. It, it's kind of, again, very, very efficient storytelling. I think in terms of, in terms of that, um, yeah. in terms of, uh, interstellar. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at people? Mm, can I ask, do you guys know the only use of green screen in the film? I do not. Uh, I was... Oh, it... Sorry? No, no, I was only going to guess. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm keen to see what you think it might be. Um... Well, I, he probably uses something other than green screen to do like the inception <laughs> effect, which he does like the a tesseract. Few times. Yeah, he does it at the station and on the tesseract and on the. Oh no, sorry, I don't mean the spinning um, kind of um, 
um, corridor. I'm, I'm, I mean, oh, the, the folding, uh, like par- Paris yeah. upside down. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he does that on 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 man's planet as well. With, yeah, with the yeah. with the mountains where they're kind of like echoed onto each other. I suspect it's going to be something very banal and very embarrassing where he needed a pickup from an actor but didn't have access to the set. So it's probably going to be something like a cornfield. Ironically, is it? Oh uh, no! Apparently, I was listening to an interview with the uh, VFX head, and he said the only use of green screen was during the baseball game at the very, very end. When, so when he goes, right, good call. Yeah, when when Coop goes to the window and looks out the window, he's like, "That was the only time they use we use green screen." And even then, he was like, <laughs> "It was very reluctant." Yeah. <laughs> Can we build a proper three dimensional <laughs> space that defies yeah. the laws of gravity? Um, actually. <laughs> Worth singling out there, uh, Matt Damon as man, because we kind of alluded to him earlier, but it's such a great use of Matt Damon. Such a fantastic, because again, Matt Damon is, <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're used to Matt Damon playing these kind of, like, rugged individualist kind of heroes, people like, say, Jason Bourne. <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, stuck in, in Dorky. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but, like, and the fact that he turns out to be such a fantastic, sniveling coward. Like, I... I don't think I hate a single Nolan villain as much as I hate man. I can't think of anything. And the movie hates him as well, which is fantastic. Like all the kind of nonsense that he's spouting. The fact that he's interrupted mid-sentence, um, which I kind of love, where he's like... I... I... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I because I, I think Nolan really likes his villains generally. Yeah, he has a lot of fun with the Joker um, and with Bane and stuff. Um. Yeah, but the, the yeah the, the the moment and the the short trip that um, that the death of man <laughs> gets, I love that. Yeah. Like not not because it's it's so insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> like you know screw that guy yeah, it's <laughs> but, um, but it's like so the... so spectacular it's so so good that that kind of no time for caution when um, oh that sequence yeah that sequence is just so incredible and it's scored so mm, yeah that is one of the great um, music and and again, like, and we haven't talked too much about technique or craft here, but things like, say, Nolan, again, borrowing from 2001 Space Odyssey, fixing the camera to the ships so that when they rotate, the camera fixates on them as a point of focus and the stars and the black holes seem to rotate around them. Or things like, like, he does it repeatedly. He does it through that no time for caution sequence as well. And it's breathtaking when it happens. But things like, say, cutting to exteriors in space in absolute silence. Yes. So like like that sequence where man blows up because you get you just get the vacuum effect that cuts him off mid sentence. And again, the thing that I really hate about man isn't like how cowardly and snivelly he is. It's the fact that while he's doing it, he's constantly monologuing about how great he is. Yeah. <laughs> about how, <laughs> about yeah. how don't worry, he's going to save everybody. Yeah, um, it's like a Shakespearean like, performance in a way. Shakespearean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's really great. But like the fact that like you get that moment where he gets sucked out, you get the suck- suction of the air, and then you just see in silence the lander crashing into like the components from the the kind of endeavor, and just kind of like smashing into it, and them exploding in space, and then you cut to inside kind of like the, the kind of lander with um, McConaughey, with Cooper and with Brand and the score just soars. It's yeah. like, it's remarkably well constructed. I think I've described the No Time for Caution as perhaps the closest that Nolan has come to filming a sex scene. 
Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, have, have, have either of you had sex while, while <laughs> listening to that sound? <laughs> Uh, no, it, it, um, that's, wait, yeah. that's awaiting the, me. Yeah. I've done it once. The, the, the person was like, what? Oh. Is this? <laughs> <laughs> they were talking about the soundtrack? Yeah. <laughs> letting, those, letting those bass notes hit you, eh? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, those pipes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So... <laughs> We're just going to let that the comments do awkwardly for a second there, Andrew. So, so Murphy Murphy isn't called after Alex Murphy from Robocop. Unfortunately, um, missed opportunity. But it, it it is about a man longing for his family. <laughs> um, um, there, there, the in, in terms of food waste. Sorry, um, sorry, Andy. We do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, 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 they. There's the, all of the burning yes. um, fields of corn that uh, catch fire and um, create smoke, and it's. And I'm uh, going to guess that Donald, played by John Levitt, doesn't. Uh, John Lithgow, sorry, John Lithgow, um, doesn't actually eat the popcorn that he gets at the ball game either. I'm going to reckon. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably, yeah. He orders it, and then they have to go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, he would have thrown it away in disgust anyway. <laughs> not a yeah. uh, Which I think is a, a re- uh, that's a reference to a line that uh, I think Roy uh, Rob Schneider, uh, Roy Schneider, sorry, not Rob Schneider, very different movie, um, says to him in t- 2010, the year we made contact, as well. He delivers that line in that kind of way as well. Um, all right, Andy, what about yourself? Is anything jumping out at you? Anything that we haven't talked about already? Anything that you think merits discussion? Um, I think I don't know if we've talked enough about the design of Tarzan Case. The uh, the the just the idea that a robot would be so uh, functional and yet still so human without looking or acting in a android kind of way. I thought that was that's just that design was really interesting. The way that Case can turn into an asterisk, like when necessary. <laughs> was really cool and roll a cartwheel um, that yeah that sort of stuff is like that's really thinking like i've no, never seen a robot like this in cinema before this is feels very new and we should single out bill Irwin, who did the puppetry for both of them because Irwin is an actor he's he's played a lot of like i think he popped up in csi a couple of times with uh, lawrence fishburne but he was on legion for three seasons but he's i think a trained clown or a mind mm. so he mm-hmm. has that kind of physicality um and he's he's really really good here he also does the voice of tars as well yeah, just the design of them is incredible. And the way in which they, they have, like, paws and they can kind of, like, they can fold out in different ways. They yeah. can carry things or lift things or hook things. It's a very clever design. It is. And every time they do something new, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's plausible. <laughs> Even though it's, like, this miraculous plot, to, you know, mechanics to help this scene, you know, do what it needs to do. Yeah, brilliant design. Yeah. Why, why did anybody leave the ship on that first planet? Why didn't they just send, like, yeah, why didn't they just send t- uh, Case out? And that would have handled things much more. Yes, Case could have gotten the, um, the data. I love as well going to sleep without an alarm set. That, that, that Dr. Man kind of like, goes, goes to sleep with no wake up. Kind of wake, wake, wake up. I mean, like, again, very much in keeping with Dr. Such a luxury. Yeah, keep it, very much in keeping with Dr. Man as a character. It's like, oh, don't worry. Somebody will wake me when they come to get me. It'll be fine. I'm not planning on going solo. 
I did, I, um, and by the way, apparently nerds will have figured out that uh, man was talking out of various parts of his anatomy long before uh, Cooper and Brand, because apparently when he says, you know, under the chlorine, there's actually a rich planet surface. Apparently chlorine is heavier than air. So there oh, should be nothing right. underneath yeah. chlorine, apparently, um, <laughs> which I kind of like uh, as yeah. well in terms of playing his hand a bit early. All right, then. Anything else jumping out at either of you, Andrew, Andy, anything we want to talk about, anything we haven't discussed already? No, I think this is all pretty much pretty pretty good stuff. Yeah, perfect. Oh, there, there's masks, of course. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a pandemic it's a pandemic movie as well. Well, it, it is. Like I found myself watching it in the middle of the pandemic and thinking about like because this has been a lost year for a lot of people as well. Like this has been a year where it's again, how does time even work in a pandemic? Uh, which is probably something very tenant related. But the idea that yeah that that. This has been a year where I have not necessarily been in contact with my parents as much as I would like to, where I haven't seen people that I would like to, where, you know, missed opportunities in life, missed people going by. Again, time always, time is always slipping away, but this year in particular, it felt very acute. So I think, yeah, no, I think it absolutely is a a pandemic movie. And it's a movie that I think maybe hit me a bit harder watching it in the midst of a pandemic than it did beforehand. So it's like, yeah, sure, I can I can go out anytime I want. I can do anything whenever I want. I'm not stuck in here by myself, you know, forever. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really considered that. All right, then. I think that about wraps it up, then. Um, so what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something they're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie. But to give Andy a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. So um, I mentioned that I really like the soundtrack which made me want to sort of look for um, similar kind of uh, music. Now, a lot of the most popular church church organ music is Bach. And for me, Bach is just a little bit too kind of uh, busy. I'm not a big fan of Baroque music. Um, But someone who... You couldn't listen to too much of it, Bach to Bach. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's been a long pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't well, an uh, organic one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, some, some, someone, someone I, 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 I liked that kind of maybe is is more to like a, a sort of a minimalist ear, or um, is um, Arvo Parrot. I seem to have a thing. For these um, men in their eighties, um, of, of of which Arvo Part is 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 one, um, and I guess if he he's a he's a composer, he's from Estonia, um, and he writes um, explicitly uh, religious music, so it, it's not kind of it's, it's not just that it sounds religious; it's it's that he is. Um, that is the type of music he's 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 making, and I suppose it makes sense as well. Him growing up in the Soviet Union, um, it, it makes it kind of um, more um, of a kind of a you know an urgent kind of re- repressed desire to connect with God, I guess. Um, but one particular track of his is the Beatitudes. People, 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 people. I guess who might be familiar with with the with the Gospels might be familiar with Beatitudes, <laughs> or even people have seen the life of Brian. Um, 
But about at, at about the five minute mark, it's like about six minutes in total. At about the five minute mark, it just goes on. Um, there's like a long amen. And then the church organs kick in. And it's like, it's like the beat drops. You know? <laughs> the bass. It's like dropping the bass yeah, on the dance yeah, track. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, When's the amen so, going to drop? <laughs> exactly. But uh, I... And and the church organs just kind of take it away from there, and it's incredible. Um, I I I really enjoyed it. Um, and um, some people have said that Hans Zimmer. Um, I've I've heard at least what I've 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 I've, I've, I've seen like comments mentioned that that um Hans Zimmer kind of might rip 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 off uh, Terry Riley a bit. That it sounds a bit like in the summer. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if 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 he wants to be inspired or influenced by by Terry Riley, more power to him. Um, but if you're looking for some Terry Riley music, I'd probably recommend um, Chi Song. There, there's an arrangement by uh, Keisuke Nagagoshi. It's uh, it's called for for um, for forehand piano. Um, that's a beautiful piece of music as well. So I recommend that. I'd also recommend. Um, Christopher Nolan's um, book. It's called um, Darren Mooney, um, a critical study of the podcast. It's a very great and insightful work. I think, um, I think like, you know, it, it's kind of like Steven Spielberg and James Lipton. I really feel like I understand myself after reading it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should, uh, Christopher Nolan should put that on, on the, on the, on the, <laughs> Like a yeah. <laughs> I, I do feel a little, I feel a little bit miffed that it's like I, I, you know, there wasn't really, there weren't really that many Nolan centric books in the market. So I went and I worked really hard and I wrote this book about him and it's like, hey, I published out there. And then the following year, it's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to have a sit down, you know, book length conversation with Tom Sean discussing my work in a great deal of detail. It's like, well, it was nice when for that, like brief eight month period where Darren's book was the <laughs> foremost study of Nolan's <laughs> filmography. Damn it. Damn it to heck. Uh, but Andy, what would you recommend for this? Uh, well, keeping on the um, idea of a theme, of mu- sorry, music and scores, because I've actually spent quite a bit of pandemic working on a score for a short film. I've done a couple of scores just for short films and a bit for a feature. So I've went uh, pretty deep listening to a lot of different stuff. And um, I guess I'm, there's, I guess there's a few things I'd recommend. I certainly thought... Um, I love you. Sorry, I love your description of Arvo Pear. That's yeah, so on the money. Particularly when you're talking about uh, the way that Arvo uses organs and these sorts of huge, big sounds. I've was really liking on the opposite end of the spectrum. Nicholas Bretel's score to If Beale Street Could Talk. That's really great. Like intimate sort of mm. pandemic listening. That probably a bunch of your listeners are already familiar with. I've also got really into this podcast called Art of the Score, which is by three Australian guys as a composer and a couple of um, uh, I think actually they're you know, all composers. And academics, and they kind of do you know a two-hour deep dive into a score for a particular film and into a composer, and they you know will play parts of the score on the piano and talk about the harmonic arrangements and that sort of stuff. So that was um, I would have definitely recommend people tracking that down if they're really if they're interested in um, film themes and music for films. Fantastic, thank you, Andy. Um, and we'll, we'll come back for like uh, kind of we'll, oh, no yeah we'll come back to kind of like your your kind of your where we can find you in a moment, but. You mentioned you were scoring some short films and stuff like that. Would you like to kind of mention any of them or where listeners can find them or where they're at? Sure. Well, 
there was one that came out at the beginning of last year called Audio Guide, which is actually free, available to, to watch um, through this uh, Australian Film Festival at the moment. It's on YouTube at the moment. If, I think if you, if you search Audio Guide short film, the director is a guy called Chris Elena, whose um, second film I'm, score, I'm working on at the moment, actually, as soon as I finish here, I've got to kind of go back to one of the themes and keep reworking it. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, it's just something I got really, really into because um, I've been doing a few podcast scores and stuff like that, and so I think that was um, what they, what Chris heard, and he was like, "Oh, I like your theme for that podcast. Can you do the f- music for my film?" And um, yeah, it's kind of taken off from there, and I've kind of acquired more gear and taking started taking it more seriously and nice. doing more research. Cool, fantastic. Uh, in terms of recommendations for myself, um, Tenet, the the new Christopher Nolan film, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, it didn't make the two fifty, so we haven't talked about it. I may find a way to muscle Andrew into talking about it at some point yeah, in the I'd, future. I'd, I'd second that, I guess. <laughs> Um, um, I, I'm 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 also a fan. I think I've recommended it before. Yeah, um, I would entirely recommend that. In terms of again, the climax of this this movie features um, infinity and infinite time and space reflected in a little girl's bedroom, and kind of makes the epic intimate. Um, that is also a motif in the first season of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, which was broadcast back in 2011 in the UK. I don't think that Nolan ripped it off, but I do think that they have certain themes in common, particularly their meditation on the idea of time and the idea that you lose time and the time that you lose with a child or a relative is time that you never get back. Um, and that kind of plays across Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who work. I really, really like that. And I feel like I can probably tease that I am working on a third book and that it will cover... Um, a story from Stephen Moffat's seven-year tenure of Doctor Who. I can't. I don't think I can name which one it is yet, but I will tell you that there is a book coming from me soon that will cover that material. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's really it in terms of recommendations from myself. All right then. So Andy, where can we find you online? What are you up to? What are you doing? Oh well, I'm um, I'm always at, at Andy Ricky on Twitter, and um, people can contact me there if they want to. I suppose there's um bands that I'm working on. I'm still playing in the Twin Peaks cover band, doing a lot of stuff around David Lynch. I'm um, still like for a change. And um, yeah, and besides that, just working my scores away in my room. Yeah, perfect. Um, you can find you can find us on Twitter, on SoundCloud, um, wherever good podcasts and perhaps even not good podcasts sometimes are found. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at at the two fifty. Um, and yeah, next, I'd I'd recommend people listen to worse podcasts than us and then come back to it. <laughs> yeah, and, and therefore we feel like we got a boost. Like, you know, if any if anyone wanders into the, into into this podcast and thinks like. Well, the guests are great, but the hosts themselves are terrible. terrible. There are worse hosts out there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm mostly counting on the guests to boy us, to be fair. My guests guests and co-hosts to boy us. That's what I'm anchoring on here. That's what I'm gambling on. Um, But yes, so you can find us online. We're at all those places. Uh, We'll be back next week where the wonderful uh, Grace Duffy and Dee Malumbi will be joining us to discuss a blockbuster from the following here. George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. We're really looking forward to talking about it. Oh, what a film. Oh, what a lovely film. We'll be back next week. Take it easy, guys. Bye. <laughs> Bye. See Thank ya. you very much. Bye. Thank, Thank you so you, much, Andy. Andy. Jeez, that was great. That was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. What time is it where you are? Uh, is it like 9 o'clock in the morning? No, it's 11.15 a.m. now. 11.15 a.m.